Hi, my name is Tom Johnson at I'dRatherBeWriting.com, and this is my presentation that I'm giving at the STC Summit in Sacramento in 2011. It's called Organizing Help Content, Breaking Out of Topic-Based Hierarchies. And this is not actually the recording of my presentation during the summit. This is a, a pre-recording, a trial run, just to see if all these slides and my the thoughts in my head are going to cohere into anything that will be interesting to listen to. So I'm actually in my ho my hotel room, just woke up, so uh, I've been thinking about this for the last hour in bed, uh, just kind of agonizing over it actually. Um, so I thought I'd give it a trial run, and usually whenever I post my slides, people want to hear the presentation as well, so this is actually something I'll be able to post, whereas the uh, summit presentation is kind of restricted um, from, I can't exactly post it. So let me start by relating how I how this topic uh, became interesting to me a couple of years ago I was working on a help file and I was really struggling in my efforts to organize the information um, I had I don't know nine or ten folders on the left you know topically arranged uh, and I tried to kind of make sense of all these other topics to fit them into it um, and I didn't have a huge amount of topics. This is a pretty small application, as most of them are in my organization. Uh, the, maybe 200 topics. And I was trying to you know, figure out what, what would be the best logic to arrange these topics in all these folders, and the subfolders, and even the sub-subfolders. And you know, does a topic fit in, in this folder better, or the other folder? Which makes more sense to users? And uh, I found that that it was very easy for one topic to be classified in multiple locations. It really depended on your own logic of how you perceived the application and, and how all the information fit together. And this logic uh, maybe would make sense to somebody who's very familiar with the application. It would make even less sense to somebody who's brand new to it which would be the case for a user looking for it. I have a friend in Idaho who tells me uh, that she has kind of a similar dilemma or a similar experience when she goes to the store looking for coconut cream. Um, and this isn't exactly an information topic, but it presents the exact same sort of dilemma. Uh, where would you go to find coconut cream or let's say you're a grocer where would you put coconut cream in a way that would make sense to your stores users or shoppers would you put it next to the dessert aisle because presumably you use coconut cream in desserts would you put it in the uh, ethnic Thai section because maybe this is a common ingredient for uh, some kind of Asian food would you put it next to the coconuts because hey it's coconut cream would you put it next to the dairy or not because it's in a can would you put it along with the other canned goods so you can see there's a lot of different options and maybe where you put it depends on what you're gonna do with it maybe coconut cream can used can be used for 17 different things and so depending upon the user's needs, what they want, 
they could be looking in different places for that. There's a story of Mendeleev, who is the guy who, who put together the periodic table, that I find really compelling, and it kind of describes my, my quest to find this absolute order. Mendeleev was, uh, this is, a, I'm going to play a, an excerpt from Radiolab. This is my favorite podcast, even more than Amer than This American Life. And in it, it talks about how this Mendeleev guy would ride around on these trains trying to figure out uh, what was the perfect order for the periodic table, uh, for the for these periodic elements. I don't even know if he had conceived of the table yet. Um, so I'm going to play this. In 1860, uh, around 1860, there were trains going all over Russia, and Mendeleev could afford to take trains. He was often on enormous journeys, and to while away the time, since he couldn't do chemical experiments or whatever, he would take playing cards with the name of various elements, their chemical and physical properties, and he would play what he called chemical solitaire. Sorting them for likeness or sorting them? I'm afraid I, 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 I don't know the details. But you know what we can imagine, right? Sure. So let's just say he's there, sitting there on the train, he's looking out the window, he sees trees made of carbon, carbon. a lake made of hydrogen and oxygen, hydrogen, oxygen. behind that a mountain, Mountains, yeah. made of silica, Silicon. and he's shuffling their properties and their atomic weights in his mind, wondering, how do these things go together? What's the pattern? And he's shuffling. I'm shuffling. 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 And he did this for years. Until one night. This we think is true. In February of 1869, he is said to have had a dream. In his dream, all the atoms of all the elements of all the world. The fat ones, the small ones, the dense ones, the heavy ones, the friendly ones, the shy ones. They all began to dance in his mind. And then they snapped into a grid. He awoke with a vision of the periodic table. This is one of those <laughs> dreams, which he then wrote on the back of an envelope. So how many, how many of you out there have ever had a similar quest? You, you've been flipping around the different order, moving them in different places, and you're just trying to find this perfect arrangement that just makes sense for this topic or for this information and you know like Mendeleev I wanted to have this little vision that snaps in my head at some perfect moment but it never never really did and I think it's partly because in contrast to the physical world information doesn't necessarily have a natural order and in fact the physical world probably doesn't have a natural order uh, the order that Mendeleev came across makes sense to a scientist um, who's studying atoms and elements and so forth or the different components of atoms it may not make sense to somebody else so I think that uh, in essence topics are kind of like the platypus uh, you can have they just are made up of different pieces that can be classified in different ways you've got a, the, the bill of a duck the tail of a beater, beaver, you've got the feet of an otter uh, also. Um, platypuses are venomous, which is not something you typically expect from a creature like this. It lays eggs, yet it's a mammal, meaning it, it uh, gives milk to its young. 
So if you're a scientist, how do you classify this thing? Um, I think that this problem is much more common with information. Information typically could be classified in five different ways, and it all depends on what, what your sort of priorities are. So this presents a huge problem um, to users or to, to help authors. When we've got these huge information sets and we don't really know we don't really know how to organize them in a way that's going to make sense to users. So a lot of people think, well, you know what? That's okay because people just search for the term anyway. They're going to search for it. And and I think relying on search, you know, it's 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 okay. It's not bad, but it search is not going to be the the thing that solves the problem. And and there's several reasons for it. Uh, in Donna Spencer's Practical Guide to Information Architecture, she has this this picture, and she holds this up to to a user or to a group of people at a conference, and she says, "What do you call those things uh, that surround the drink there?" And she said, "Some people shouted stubby holders, and others shouted koozies, and I saw this, and I'm like, I've never even heard of either of those terms. I would call this like a uh, drink cooler thing. I don't even know. I I've never even. I don't even know if I've ever used one of those. So what would you call this this thing? What would you call this thing that you put on the outside of a drink that supposedly keeps it cool uh, in, in a thermos type apparatus? I don't know. Uh, so so you have failure immediately when you don't know the exact terms. And even if there is an exact term for this, I don't know it. So it doesn't really matter. So whether there is a term or isn't a term, it's kind of irrelevant if there's not a commonly known term for, for the thing. Search also fails for another reason. Uh, it, it doesn't help you discover things that you don't know. So search is great if you know what you're looking for. You, you, you have a known item that you're seeking. So you type that item in. But how do you know what you don't know? Uh, there's a great quote in a book uh, by Peter Morville on search patterns. He quotes Donald Rumsfeld. He says there, and Rumsfeld's talking in the context of Afghanistan and so forth. So it's kind of a political quote, but it's it's the exact. Uh, it expresses exactly this issue. He says there are known knowns. There are things we know that we know. There are known unknowns. That is to say, there are things. We now know that we don't know, but there are also unknown unknowns. These are things we do not know we don't know. So how do you know what you don't know? And uh, I, I like this photo because it's kind of like this dark tunnel, right? You, you don't know what's at the end of that tunnel or what's down there. And uh, if all you're relying on is search, then people aren't going to be able to they're not going to be able to discover things they don't know. So let's give an example of this. Here's a this is a, this is Illustrator. So I picked something many people may not even be familiar with. But I'm going to play a clip and uh you tell me if this is something that you know you knew you could do. And I think I have to go out to YouTube for this. All right. So uh Oops. Let's getting into the technical difficulties already. 
See, this is this is good that I'm practicing now. <laughs> okay. All right. Now I recorded this the other day, and it's like a 10-second clip. But I did it so that I could have some way of just trying to get across this unknown unknown. Let's say you're learning Illustrator. Uh, there we go. Now there's no actually no sound to this clip, but tell me if this is something that um, you would know. You create a new shape, and you want to automatically make that shape like another. Well, you use the eyedropper, and voila. So that's a simple example. So I'm sure that um, there could be many, many examples, many examples where where there are actions that maybe you didn't even know you could do. So if you're learning Illustrator, maybe you thought, maybe you think you have to fill in the same formatting, color, and so forth for every single shape manually. When in fact you've got this tremendous shortcut, you just use that eyedropper tool. And then uh, you you click it on some other shape, and as long as some other shape, a different shape is selected, that different shape will take on the attributes of the other shape. So Illustrator, Photoshop, all these robust tools are full of examples like that. Stuff you don't. Even, a lot of times we didn't know we could do. And I'm still an Illustrator novice. I feel like there are so many things I don't even know I could do. So how do you help people discover? these unknown unknowns if all they're relying on is search um, in fact if I were to try to type that that sort of uh, thing into search that task into search I'm sure I wouldn't find it I don't even know what what would you type what would you search for actually I, I did search for it just to see what they called it uh, because this is another example of having to know the right terms so what do you think what do you think you'd, you would search for in order to figure out how to basically apply um, apply the color and the shading from one object to another well it turns out it is copy appearance attributes between objects so unless you have that phrase in your mind you're not going to even find it in search so so search isn't necessarily the the solution although although it's not something to be discounted there's one other drawback about search. A lot of people just just overestimate. They they think that because Google search works so well, then then search on their site will work well too. They don't realize that Google search works um, well for several different reasons. One, you have like millions of people creating content for this system. Uh, all those people at the bottom on this slide, they're all creating content. Whereas in your help system, it's usually just you and maybe a couple of other technical writers. And as such, you don't have nearly the amount of content and the variety variety that Google has. Google also has this extensive backlink algorithm so that every time somebody links to another, another uh, page, that backlink to the other page contributes to the sense of aboutness of of uh, that page, so most search search engines in help authoring tools, yeah, they don't have any kind of algorithm that looks at backlinks. Um, 
authority of each page, the authority of each page that links to another page is also something that determines whether uh, that result is going to rise up high in the search results. And finally, longevity, the longevity of the site determines how much page rank is kind of communicated through the links. So that was really brief, but I'm pretty sure that most help authoring tools and outputs don't have this kind of uh, search engine intelligence, this advanced algorithm that's helping determine uh, aboutness and, and helping make these results really precise when people make searches. So, so basically our search boxes are primitive in comparison. So to say that, oh, well, people search on Google, so search works there, search is going to be the solution in my help system. It's totally apples and oranges. So I was reading a book that really kind of changed my thinking about this. Uh, it's called Everything is Miscellaneous by David Weinberger, my favorite book that I've read in a long time. And in it, he talks about going to Staples, which you can see clearly from this slide that this is not Staples, but he goes to Staples, and I equate this to Home Depot because Home Depot is much a much better example, and Home Depot let me take the picture, whereas Staples forbid me. So, uh, actually, that's not true. I just took the picture in Home Depot because there's not enough people to police it. And um, when you go into a store, everything has to be arranged physically, right? If you're looking for um, what is that? A door, for example. That's what I can see there. If you're looking for a door. You can't have that door in multiple places in your store. It is in one place in your store. And whether you have a bath door or front door or porch door, uh, you have to pretty much put them in, in one spot. It's not the same with digital spaces. With digital spaces, you can rearrange things in infinite infinite ways. You could have a page on your website that lists all doors. You could have another page that lists all porches and or porch components and on that page it would list doors for porches and so forth. You could have lots of different entry points, ways to sort things. You're not limited to a specific physical absolute arrangement. And this is key. Um, and this is something that I think we, we miss. We miss when we create a table of contents for our help system and we just put things in one one spot and provide one entry point we're committing the same uh, we're committing we're committing the same pattern we're doing the same pattern as a store with physical items we're not taking advantage of these digital spaces and and how things can be rearranged in many different places and by the way Home Depot it is impossible to find anything in Home Depot. So despite all of these signs, bath, plumbing, kitchen, uh, go look for something like a bolt extractor. <laughs> go look for for a little piece of tubing for a drain. You know, good luck. You'll be in there for, for quite a while. So the idea, in order to take advantage of of these multiple arrangement possibilities and and and, and the possibility of multiple classifications of the content in different ways relies on something called facets. So if you think of a diamond, it's kind of the classic example, a diamond has a lot of different facets. A facet is like an angle to it. 
right? And, and our content is that way too. Um, I mentioned that, that door. Well, even a door has different kind of angles to it. You've got the color, you've got the size, you've got the brand, you've got the cost, you've got the weight. So an object has different attributes that, that you could attach to that object. And these attributes um, can then be used to push and pull the content in different ways. So let's say you wanted to find all doors that fit your porch that were under $50, you know, then you could enter through that sort of attribute portal and, and see the world based on, on that need. This is really, really apparent with music. When you create an MP3 file or when you create a music file, you've got a bunch of tags called metadata, your ID3 tags that you add information to, the artist's name, the track title, the album title, track number, year, genre, comments, content group, and these are actually um, short. If you, if you use something like stamp, which is an ID3 tag editor, you have a lot more fields too. So you've got ways to describe this content, and then when you push the content out to a site like GrooveShark, then they can sort on that metadata. They can. It's a little hard to see here, but over on the right, they can sort by artist, by album, by playlist, by people, by events, um, because they have metadata attached to each of these things that allow you to manipulate it. Because a lot of times, let's say I'm searching for fire, right? Well, if I just did a random, if I just did a general search for fire, how would I know that that's the artist's name or the album or the song cover? Um, but if you can. If you can put it in there and then manipulate the results based on based on that attribute, then you've got lots of different possibilities for arranging the content. And this leads to something called a faceted classification system, which I'm sure you've seen. This is nothing totally new. Here's an example from SportsShoes.com, and I saw this on a on some notes from a presentation by Sarah Maddox, who was recording Matthew Ellison in, in an Australia conference, I believe. Uh, so this is this is a site that sells shoes, but if you think about how many possible shoes there are, it could be really difficult to find them, right? So if you take and you 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 pick out different attributes of the shoes, you've got sports, running. I don't even know what product type is, but each of these classifications then would have sub classifications. So let's say you you choose basketball shoes. Well, actually, I don't even see basketball on here, which is quite sad but because it's what I would mostly be familiar with so let's choose running you choose running shoes well um, do you do you need like high arches or low arches you know you can continue to drill down into that classification and it really makes sense to build a site like this if you have a product like shoes where you've got so many different attributes that people might want to sort by Google is actually another example of faceted classification when you search for something on the left you have a lot of ways to filter that information let's say you're looking for something really vague I, I typed in sets because I think it's one of those words that has like a million different definitions um, but you could filter to just see images or videos or books or places or recipes or patents I'm not even sure how they like identify patents and recipes but they do and this this is a way where you have all this information but you're able to narrow it down based on these dynamic 
filters so that you're not just going into the content in one one way. Uh, Amazon is another example where when you search for a product, right, like Beauty and the Beast, you can then start to narrow it down by format and decade and rating and language and edition and region because they somehow they've got attributes applied to each of these these uh, objects that allow you to sort them in different ways. So in Peter Morville, who's one of the, the major kind of pioneers of findability, he says that faceted navigation is arguably the most significant search innovation of the past decade. And I, I guess I, I really um, downplayed search, uh, and he calls this a search innovation. But really, search and browsing, searching and browsing work together in a faceted classification. You're not just searching and browsing results. You, when you search, you're getting a new classification on the left. So, so you search and you see new options on the left, and then you can drill down into those options, which then refines what's shown. So it's kind of this pattern. But if you think about it, This is the most significant innovation in the past decade. There is not one single help system in the world that has this that I have found. And I have been asking around for quite a while. So it's kind of like this giant gap that we're missing out on. And of all the things that could use a faceted, faceted navigation, that has an advanced information set and so forth, help certainly qualifies. Um, Part of the appeal of faceted navigation, according to Peter Morville, is that it, it satisfies this universal need to narrow. Just You start broad and you get more and more narrow until you hit your result. Well, in my organization, we actually rolled out a new website that has faceted classification. And uh, a lot of people don't realize this, but so I work for the church, uh, but what people usually don't realize is that we have a huge IT department of like 800 plus people. And uh, so I, I don't even really work with the team that put this together. So I, I went and met with, uh, well, let me show you exactly how this works. Because you just kind of need to see it. So if I go out to lds.org. And I search for something like loyalty. Immediately on the left, you have several results, right? So you've got you've got your initial starting point because who knows what really I'm looking for when I search for loyalty. <clears throat> if I wanted to look in the scriptures, I click that, and suddenly I get more facets. Old Testament, New Testament, Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants. If I wanted to, wanted to look in magazines, I get um, an, a different set of subfilters. Well, do you want Thomas S. Monson, Gordon Hinckley, in the Ensign? And then I can drill down. So let's say I just want to look for Ensign articles, kind of the popular magazine, and I only want to see things written by like Gordon B. Hinckley because he's one of my favorites. Suddenly, all these results are getting narrower and narrower. And now let's say, you know what? That's fine and all, but I don't want this ancient quote. I want something the most relevant. 
from 1995. So I drill down, and now suddenly I'm down to two. And this it, this is a great way of searching these filters, author, publications, dates, are this kind of dynamic way of navigating the content that just seems really helpful. All right, let's let's go back into the presentation here. So actually, let me. I have another thing to add here. So, so I met with the guy who's the lead architect behind this, um, Stuart, and I said, Stuart, how do you do this? Because I want to put my help in here, and I want I want to be able to have all these facets and filters, and I have no idea how to do that. And he said, uh, basically, you might think there's a giant content management system behind this. There isn't. All this content resides in a Mark Logic database, and each each of these pages is structured in XML, uh, more more specifically a WebML format that Stuart kind of customized for it. And each of these filters on the left are just these little attributes of the page that are XML tags. So as long as you have an article, for example, loyalty here. And you include, um, and you you include these certain uh, attributes in kind of these meta tags for that. Then those filters are going to appear on the left. So this brings me to another point, um, because because it, with this example, all of these results on the left are dynamic, right? They 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 weren't there at the start. And you know, in one in one sense, that kind of could be limiting because I'm searching for a topic. How do I even know uh, what what the possibilities are before I search? You don't. It's kind of this this um, learning that goes in tandem. You're browsing as you're searching. In Donna Spencer's Information Architecture book, she talks about having multiple entry points. So rather than having this dynamic list that appears during the search that kind of then guides you as you're searching, what if you just had different entry points from the very beginning? And she gives some examples uh, such as browsing by audience or role or location. You know, some of these standard sort of facets that you could just start with. Um, and so, so this idea of entry points is similar to uh, it's similar to this faceted classification, but uh, you could you could differentiate them between static and dynamic um, deliveries of content. With entry points, it's sort of static. You you choose the door you want to go into, and you see the results. Whereas dynamic, you kind of go in a door, and as you're going, you see different entry points on the left. And and you see this, for example, in, in a lot of sites. It's becoming very common. For example, if you're on Hulu, right, you don't just have to browse this giant hierarchy of videos. You can start by looking at a most popular entry point, a recently added entry point, uh, recommendations or spotlights, and so forth. And um, this just gives the user different options. And you, you'll notice that that browse, the one on the very left, it's 
it's the one that arranges things in a kind of categorical hierarchy based on genre and things. But I don't really use that. I, I like the recently added and most popular, right? So a lot of times in our help, we, we really just don't even explore these alternative entry points. So I was trying to think, how now how exactly would this look for a help file? In this help file, so I kind of mocked up this thing. And on the left, I had this idea, okay, I'm going to have different entry points into the content. Allow users to browse by topic or by role, browse by skill level, popularity, or concept, or status, or format, or problem, or screen. You know, and up, the, up at the top, you could even do more of the traditionals. Uh, look at index entries or glossary terms. So this seems like this seemed like a good idea to me, but I had no way to really implement it um, other than putting everything in XML. And I didn't realize that uh, there's so many challenges to kind of implementing this idea. And first is is chunking. My content was on a wiki, and wikis tend to have kind of somewhat long pages where you have multiple topics on the same page. Uh, let me give you an example of that. So let me go back to my, let's go back to the web. Um, the calendar help that I was working on has categories on the left, um, but for example, viewing calendars. It, it, this this page would have multiple <coughs> topics on the page. Um, how to change calendar color, how to how to view churchwide calendars, how to hide a calendar, and so forth. <coughs> Sorry, it didn't make a whole lot of sense to me to have each of these topics be an individual topic on the wiki, because then I'd end up with a million different pages on the wiki, and it would be dizzying and chaotic and maze-like to navigate. So I first had to take, but at the same time, if I left all these as one giant topic, I wouldn't have the possibilities for mixing and matching them in different arrangements. So these pictures here are of little rock cairns. And because the chunks are small enough, you can manipulate them in different ways. You can put them in different arrangements. Whereas if you just have one big rock, you really can't, right? You're so limited to what you can do. So the first step in being able to provide uh, tons of different arrangements of your content is to break it down into small enough chunks that they can be manipulated. And, and it's a lot easier said than done. Uh, it can actually get quite difficult. There's there's a great metaphor by Mark Baker, who's got a blog at every page is page one, and and he has a metaphor of an alarm clock. <clears throat> With an alarm clock, right? Uh, it's got a lot of different parts, but if you break down the alarm clock into all of its parts, which I did here, um, and you say, okay, I'm I'm breaking down my content into small chunks. And now I'm going to basically request a small chunk and pull it back. Well, I'm not so sure that these small parts would be very useful. I don't even know what these small parts are. Um, one of them looks like a motor. 
One of them looks like a battery pack, another looks like a frame component, another some transistor, I don't know. And so so when you break your content into small parts, you have to you have to ask yourself, is this part have any meaning alone? Or or if I separate this out from everything else, is it just kind of lose meaning? So Mark says that you really have to you have to keep in mind that you can't break down something into a, a, such a small chunk that you really can't apply metadata to it at all. There's another person, Don Day, who's got a blog, Learning by Rote, who talks about this this difficulty, and he's got a different metaphor: the collage versus the painting. On the on the left, if you break everything down into small chunks, and then people query on those chunks, they search on them, so you get a bunch of, of these chunks back. Well, if they're so small, and and kind of they don't don't have a lot of meaning by themselves, it's going to end up looking like a collage where they don't have a whole lot of they don't really mean much in in the way they come back. Whereas on the right, if you have the painting, somebody's giving context to the whole and showing you the whole picture, it has a lot more meaning. So so when you break things down into their small chunks, you really have to figure out okay, what is the smallest size that still has significant meaning standing alone. The second uh, major task is to apply metadata to these. And the question is, well, what metadata do you apply? Um, is there a standard set of metadata? Maybe you, you've heard of the Dublin Core and you think, oh, I'll just apply one of these standard metadata sets. Well, the metadata that, that you apply really depends on what you want to do with that content, how you want to manipulate it. It doesn't make any sense to add, for example, author uh, metadata if you're not planning to sort by authors. You know, in, in this, in my case, uh, well, the author is automatically added, but in my case, the users are not going to want to sort by all the topics that Tom Johnson wrote. That might be something more for the authors. It might be nice for me to see all the topics that I didn't write on, on this wiki. So I, I looked at this uh, calendar help and I started to kind of list all the possible properties that I could think of. Um, a calling. So this is a, a church environment, right? So people have different callings in the church and which it might, it might be nice to see which topics relate to which callings. But also, there's different roles in the calendar. So the roles don't necessarily equate to callings. You could be a building scheduler, but also have a different calling, maybe a stake president, right? And so you may want to sort by, by the role that you are in the calendar. You may want to sort by, by the format and say, show me all the video tutorials, or show me all the, show me all the topics that have bugs in them. That's kind of a scary one. Uh, or show me show me all the topics that will help me support that will help me achieve my goal. Uh, maybe I want to increase member awareness of these of these events. What can I do to do that to fulfill that? Or maybe I want to see all the most popular topics and maybe just see the most popular topics by role. Or maybe I just want to see the beginner topics, right? So I came up with all these different. Um, attributes that I could apply to this specific sort of data set for this specific um, 
project, this application. And and then since this is on MediaWiki, the only really extension that allows you to manipulate content with metadata is something called the Semantic MediaWiki extension. And I decided to do this first on the wiki and then later port it into the the XML to put on the regular site because I needed to kind of understand how this would all work and have a proof of concept. So so the way this extension works is it's got certain formats, right? And and every system will have a different way of applying the metadata. But in this case, you basically have this little syntax and you apply it to each topic. Now, I didn't have that many topics in here. I mean, it's an online calendar. It shouldn't be that hard to figure out and work, right? But uh, applying the metadata was extremely tedious. And and um, I was talking with Joe Goldner the other day, who, who works with systems with millions of topics. And I asked him how he inserts metadata onto them. And he actually has a whole uh, software like, software program programming language called OmniMark that will go and look at different attributes of a topic and then apply metadata based on whether that topic has that attribute, which I think is a good idea, you know. And but he said, you know, at some point, uh, there are no attributes that allow you to programmatically decide what metadata should be applied to that topic. In that case, and it becomes more of a, ma a manual thing. So anyway, the, the step of applying metadata to each topic is is what you need to do. And here you can see that um, there's an obvious flaw in this extension in, in maintaining a structured taxonomy because you have to know the exact terms that I'm entering here. And there are other uh, extensions that would give you like a form that you select. But since this is just temporary, uh, I decided to go with this. And then you run queries based on the metadata. So this extension has the semantic search feature. You type in the properties, you know, rank, and then choose the value for that property, popular, and calling, and clerks, whatever, however you want to mix and match them. And as a result, you get a bunch of lists. So this, this kind of presented a new problem. So I had all these different entry points, and, and, and yet each entry point only kind of gives you access to a list of topics. And I guess the list isn't that bad, but part of the problem is that the list is just going to sort things in alphabetical order or in reverse and descending order, reverse alphabetical order. order. And it's kind of machine-like. Um, it's, it's not that, I don't know, uh, just having like this randomly ordered list or, or this list that doesn't necessarily have a, a natural order to it doesn't seem like the best solution. But that's kind of how things end up when you when you're querying, they become a list. Now the other flaw in this is that um, there's no like dynamic searching on the left, right? These are just still have the basic topical hierarchical um, nesting and categorization that I, I wanted to move away from. And and there's a lot of flaws in this, but it was kind of like this is my first attempt in moving in this direction. And I don't think I have a slide for this, so I'm gonna I'm gonna go to it. But if you go to this calendar help, I haven't really implemented this, by the way. So I mean, I've implemented it here, but I haven't put it in a way that people can find. 
But if you come here, eventually I'll put this probably on the home page. You can sort by different things. You can look for most popular topics. You can look for things by goal, by subject. And each of these, if you go in, you pretty much get lists. And I don't know. I just, I'm not sure that this is the best way. Part of the problem is that this is all static, right? You go in here and it's very a static experience. You can't combine this browsing with search at the same time by selecting different filters that narrow what you want. So in that sense, this is really kind of a limited model. Um, so let's go back to the presentation. So I was looking around. I said, certainly there must be some other help system out there that has this implemented well. And I found one called the Semantic Enterprise Wiki. And they had, theirs was a, a lot more kind of in-depth. It looked, it looked more interesting. First of all, they entered metadata through a series of forms. And they chose different metadata attributes such as title, audience, summary, image, reviewer, document status. And then at the bottom of each of these topics, it would actually expose that metadata. And they solved the list problem by having a position which I think is a good idea, but if you have the same topic in multiple different lists, uh, that position certainly couldn't carry across to each of the different list arrangements. So they don't necessarily have different entry points here. They just have some semantic information, some metadata about the topics. But they also have uh, some other things that help give context to the isolated chunks that people find. So when you search and navigate, you can you can kind of find your way through breadcrumbs, through a, a tree view on the right, through some embedded stuff. And I asked Rachel Lovinger, who's one of the experts on metadata, how how you overcome this problem where you've chunked everything down and then you you view a chunk, but now you have no idea how it fits into the whole and how it plugs into the other content. She says, well, um, the solution is to add metadata to that topic that's going to make that context more visible. And here's an example of that. But by and large, there aren't any help systems that have the faceted classification. And if I had a couple more months, I would have been able to show that by, by basically porting my content into XML and putting it into that LDS.org site that I was showing you. I just didn't quite have time to do that yet. But it's the, the direction I'm going. And part of the frustration with this lack of, of faceted classification is that the really our, our tools aren't capable of the task, right? Every help authoring tool, pretty much, you can't do that. Uh, there's nothing, nothing out of the box that would allow you to do that. But the only way you can implement faceted classification for your help topics is through XML and then a database. Now there are some vendors, uh, SDL, who are developing new solutions. Like they've got a solution called Live Content that uh, is just rolling out that that will supposedly allow you to do that. But they don't have any examples yet because it hasn't been rolled out. So this is kind of like the next thing. This is going to be the next big thing in help is this faceted classification. But the only way to do that is by structuring or by adding these semantic tags to all of your topics to be able to then sort them. 
And in this case, even if you, you put it in XML, right, and you've got all these semantic tags, you've got to render that somehow. Uh, you've got to transform those XML topics so that they're visible in the browser. And to do that, you usually need, uh, you pretty much need a, a, some kind of technical team that's implementing that. So that's where I, that's where I am. And uh, this is as far as I've gotten. But it's the direction I'm heading because I know that findability is huge. And the way we arrange things now in these these little table of contents types types of arrangements is archaic. And and if we want to basically allow users to find find our content, we have to provide different arrangements, different entry points. We have to allow them to dynamically choose those entry points as their browsing search results so they can narrow and find things. And when we do that, it's going to really take our help and move it just decades forward in terms of usability. Alright, so that is my presentation. Here's my contact information. You can uh, check out my blog at idratherbewriting.com or send me an email or tweet. Alright, thanks.